Denise Clark is a retired school teacher who still works as a substitute. When COVID hit and her high school switched to remote learning, it was hard for her for all the normal reasons, but also, like lots of older people, she wasn't so great on computers. Ditto for her friend Pearl, who was another substitute at that school, who Denise would do crossword puzzles with in the faculty lounge. Pearl, also not so great on the computers. And Pearl was a decade older than Denise, in her mid-70s. She always told me, can you help me? She thought I was good at it. So she always wanted me to help her. I really wasn't the best person. It took a while for me to learn to tell you the truth. You know, you think if you're 75 and your job completely changes, you might call it quits. But Pearl was adamant. She was going to learn to work on the computer. And when she got stuck, she wasn't shy to call in help from the IT guy or the assistant principal or really whoever she could find. I had to tip my hat to her if I had one because she would keep trying. That's the thing I like about her. She'd ask questions. She was doing better than some of us. (laughs) And Pearl, she kept up with it. You know, she didn't know. Sometimes she had some difficulties. What kind of difficulties was she having? Well, we all had difficulties. You know, we had to get get in. Sometimes the computer's mics would go off. But this was new to Zoom stuff, but you had to learn it. Pearl did learn it. Pearl's daughter Pam, in fact, told me that she watched, fascinated, that her 70-something-year-old mom was on the computer all the time. Over a year before this, she'd bought Pearl a laptop that had mostly gone unused. But now, Pearl's running a classroom on Zoom, taking attendance, telling kids to get on camera and participate. I always tell her how proud I was of her for that. And after that achievement, okay, who would have guessed that this was going to happen? Pearl started using her computer and her phone when she was not working in ways that her daughter had never imagined were possible. She never, my mom never sent me an email. But when she got on Facebook, oh my goodness. Oh, really? She started communicating through Facebook all the time. So there was some day where, like, you're on Facebook and then suddenly your mom pops up and were you just like, what's happening? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so all of a sudden my mom is coming up in my timelines. Like, if I put a picture up of, you know, me and my daughter's... um, going out to eat somewhere, then I, I would get something on Facebook saying, you didn't invite me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and things like that, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, it would be funny sometimes if she couldn't get in contact with me or Damon, that's my younger brother. Mm-hmm. She knows that if she would put on Facebook, tell Pam or tell Damon to call me, someone in our family is calling us to say, you know, call your mom. On Saturday, May 14th, Pam's mom, Pearl, was one of the 10 people killed at Topps Grocery in Buffalo. A teenage white supremacist has been charged with driving over three hours there to murder black people. When something like the Buffalo shooting happens, each of the people killed gets summarized afterwards in a sentence Pearl was Pearl Young, the 77-year-old grandmother who taught Sunday school and ran a food pantry at the church for decades. That leaves so much out about how she lived. Big things, like the special connection she had with teenagers, how they'd bond with her and talk to her about what was really going on with them. Little things, like how her world changed when she learned the computer and started mildly trolling her grown children on Facebook. For all of us, too big to fit into a sentence. Take Aaron Salter Jr., who was also killed at Tops that day. The story about him that was repeated a lot in the wake of the shooting, he was a store security guard 
a retired police officer. And when the gunman came in firing a semi-automatic rifle, Aaron Salter exchanged fire with him. But the guy was wearing body armor and killed Aaron Salter. He was called a hero. There are photos of him in his uniform. But there were other sides to him. In his spare time, Salter would invent things. He was a tinkerer, rebuilt a 67 Cadillac. In 2011, when gas prices rose to over $4 a gallon, he went online and bought plans to refit a car engine so it would run on water by splitting the water into hydrogen and oxygen and using the hydrogen as fuel. Like um, any hobbyist, there are videos of him talking about this online, getting those original plans. I was skeptical myself. I didn't, you know, I didn't believe that it would work, but um, I just wanted to see. He says the plans that he bought online, they weren't any good. So, he designed his own version with a cooling system and a circulation system. And it worked. A little anyway. All right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna start it. His system, which he built and installed in an F-150 truck, was innovative enough that it was actually granted a patent. And Salter says in these videos that he's been able to drive the truck on hydrogen for eight-tenths of a mile so far. Though, in the videos, it all very much still looks like a work in progress. Like, after he throws the valve to send hydrogen into the engine, it runs for a little while, but then um, he has to shut it down. It's holding water in it. Mm-hmm. Water pours out of the tube that's supposed to be carrying only hydrogen. That's not supposed to be there, right? That's why it's not running. Watching him troubleshoot on these videos where it really starts to feel like you see Aaron Salter's personality for the first time. He's calm. Methodical. Gotta get this water. His son, Aaron III, told a reporter after he died that the last time he saw his dad, they went riding motorcycles. And when his motorcycle broke down and his dad got into the engine to try to fix it, it was the most Aaron Salter Jr. thing his dad could have done. Just seeing him in action, he said, doing stuff like that is what I'm going to miss about him. Today on our program, this has been a year of so many mass shootings, really horrific ones, that it feels hard to absorb the names and pictures of each one before the next one happens. The body was, I don't know, what was it, 10 days after Buffalo? What happened in Buffalo was a mass shooting, but it was also an act of racial violence. The alleged killer wrote in his 180-page manifesto that his whole goal was, quote, to kill as many blacks as possible. That's how he chose tops. He didn't care in particular who they were, just that they were black. What do you do in the face of that? Well, I think first and foremost, it seems worth asserting the obvious fact that these were not interchangeable black people, but specific people living their lives. And then remember them for who they were, as well as we know how. At our show, we were talking about that list of names that went around after Buffalo. Ten names and ages. And what do we mean to know more about them? And tell some of their stories in ways that we hadn't heard before, after one of these shootings. And we asked a bunch of black writers to use their skills to help us do just that. Each one wrote about somebody they felt some connection to or noticed some detail about that they couldn't get out of their head to show you a side of these 10 people that you have not heard or seen. That's our show today. From WBZ Chicago, this is American Life. I'm Eric Glass. Stay with us.
music that you're hearing right now is by Curtis Lovell, a Buffalo musician who uh, you're going to hear throughout the show today. And let's start with Celestine Cheney, 65 years old. The one uh, sentence description of her was uh, something like, she attended Fosdick Maston Vocational High School, which was a prestigious school for girls in Buffalo, where she studied to be a seamstress, went on to jobs in Buffalo companies that made suits and baseball caps. Though um, in reading about her, we saw a thing where one of her grandchildren, a 25-year-old, uh, Kayla Jones, said her grandmother was her best friend. They were really close. Somebody that she can confide in of her homemade margaritas. They'd party together. Writer Brittany Luce was interested in that relationship and talked to Kayla. Kayla Jones says most of the words you use to describe a grandma apply to hers, Celestine Cheney. She could sew, was active in church, and loved to host. The family would often get together at Celestine's place for parties. Like... Real parties. Grandma had a bar. Like, she used to, have, like, at her house, a lot of people come over for, like, they have game night. You know, our game nights, like, Uno and stuff. But their game nights is, like, gambling with, like, card games and stuff like that. And they're bingo. So that's why, they, like, a lot of her um, sisters and her cousins and stuff, they come over and they do all that. They got a bar. The thing Kayla connected most with her grandma about, they both like to look good. Nails, hair, clothes. Celestine refused to leave the house looking anything less than immaculate. She and Kayla shared that in common. Of course, they had different ideas about what immaculate looked like. Kayla says her grandma would tease her for showing too much skin. Celestine preferred to shop at Kohl's and Burlington Coat Factory. She always at the nail shop whenever she needed to fill. She wore acrylics. So mm. never nothing too long. She's always like the oval. Like, I can say like short, not too short length. Mm-hmm. And she got the little, always used to have like the, Back in the day, nail tech, like, you know, back in the day, the styles we used to get, like, she still got those, like, with the little lines and dots and stuff like with that. The lines and dots are called palm tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. we used to wear it in the early 2000s. She, she still gets that style. Celestine reminds me a lot of my own mom. They're both loving grandmothers, church ladies who like to party, and they both love a full look. They were also both born in the 1950s. Many Black women of that generation were taught that chipped nails, undone hair, or wrinkly clothes could widen the gap between you and a job, a home loan, or basic respect. Beauty was a joy, but it was also a shield. When Kayla was still a kid, Celestine went through a lot with her health. She battled breast cancer and suffered three brain aneurysms. When Celestine began to lose her hair, Kayla started to style it for her. They took a piece of her fallout, so I'm not sure if they was working on the brain or something like that. So she had like a little dent in it. And I know for sure, like, that's the worst part about it that she hated was that. And of course, because her hair had to get cut off. So like in that part where the dent was, the hair fairly like it didn't grow as much. Mm-hmm. So like when I used to like, like sometimes she will wear her real hair and I have to curl it. Like she was just like, can you please just make sure like you cover that up? Because she, she genuinely did not like that. What was it like, like back then, to be able to care for your grandmother in that way? I didn't really like it because I know she didn't like it, and I know she felt some type of way about it. It's just sad to, so I just did whatever I can to help out because I know if it was me, I, I would hate it too. Kayla's interest in hair eventually led her to hair school. In recent years, Kayla started making wigs for her grandmother just because Celestine liked them. She'd see Kayla in her custom wigs and say. Give me that wig when you're done with it. 
So I can't say she had a favorite, but I did make her a couple. Of, I got I, my favorite wig that she had was the one I made her, and it had blue streaks in it. I blue gave her streak. some blue streaks. Yep, I got a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so was it short or was it long? It was like a short bob. I made her a short middle part bob, and I put like little couple tracks in it, like blue tracks, like teal. That's cute. And throughout the back, but she had like a nice little uh, wavy bob. She really liked that. I was gonna say, what was her response when she saw the wig was blue? She was cracking up. I got a video when I had. Uh, she liked. It. I think she liked it. <laughs> she wore it. <laughs> it wasn't OD. A lot of blue in there. I probably put like three, four tracks in. So it had like, I was, like small sorry. streaks. Yeah, yeah. She didn't have like, a, like nothing too blue, too much. Something that she can definitely wear, but it's something a little extra. You know, extra little. She never had a, a little style like that, so I wanted her to stand out a little. Celestine was a traditional lady. The type who might find a signature style and stick with it. A crescent curl, a roller set, maybe they'll do a flat iron with a little bump at the end, but your granddaughter suggesting blue highlights? Not gonna happen. But Celestine was loving and trusting enough of Kayla to allow herself to be seen the way her granddaughter saw her. Celestine embraced all of Kayla, exactly how she was, mostly. She can't stand my eyelashes there so long when I do put lashes in. She, I'm gonna cut them off with toenail clippers. I, I literally have a video of her saying that. Like, I'm gonna get them, take the little caterpillars off your eyes. <laughs> That's the only thing she could not stand was them long lashes. That's why I put some more her. I ain't OD at the funeral, but like when I put her together for sure, I did put lashes on her. You put lashes on her for the funeral? Yep, it was my payback. She <laughs> 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 looked cute though. <laughs> did you do her hair for the funeral as well? Yeah, I got her a wig, like a short uh, bob. It was a front bang wig. And then I had one of my best friends do her makeup. And then we had matching outfits. So I had, we had the same suit on. Like exactly the same outfit. Just same suit, same undershirt. Do you think your, do you think your grandmother would be honored by that? By you all being like looking so much alike on that day? Oh, of course. I made sure she went out like she looked really cute. Like she looked really good. And because they had to do a lot of like a lot of uh they, they had to reconstruct the side of her face. So I had to just make sure like we could get her as looking just like, you know what I mean? To herself as possible. But she looked really good. Like really good. When we're little, the first and often only people to care for our hair are family. Mothers, aunties, sisters, cousins, and grandmothers. We spend long mornings between their knees or at kitchen tables with combs and brushes next to our cereal bowls before our days even begin. Their palms kiss our scalps, allowing us to greet an unkind world with a halo of love. And sometimes, when we grow up, we have the honor of returning the gesture. Brittany Luce is co-host of the For Colored Nerds podcast. Andre McNeil, born 1969. After the Buffalo shooting, there wasn't a lot written about Andre McNeil, and his family hasn't been talking much to the press. We know that he worked at a restaurant, had five children, that he wrote poetry. The one place that he shared parts of himself publicly was on TikTok. Here at our radio show, the person who swims the furthest and deepest in the ocean that is TikTok is Bim Adewunmi. She has many thoughts about what she sees there. We were very interested to hear what she would say about his videos. She likes them. Andre was 53 years old when he was murdered. 
And he used TikTok exactly as you would expect a 53-year-old man to use TikTok. Which is to say, he's not interested in recreating complex choreographed dances. And he's not telling funny stories. We actually never hear his voice. Instead, there are slideshows of friends and members of his family, or of himself, often in his car. Here's one of his partner in hospital after giving birth. Here's a smiling kid with cornrows. Here's a screenshot of a Facebook photo. His videos are all soundtracked by music he liked. Some of it three decades old. R&B songs by artists like Luther Vandross, Usher, Jagged Edge, Tevin Campbell, Jeremiah. I recognise the music because I love this music too. It hits me watching. We're not that far apart in age. The most TikTok thing Andre does in the 37 videos he posted, he lip-syncs to hip-hop and R&B classics. In one, he mouths along to Raheem Devon's 2008 song, Customer. Andre looks right into the camera in these videos. The frame's super tight around his face and chest, and he emotes. He puts his hand to his chest and his temple, and points to the camera, landing the lyrics with intent. His beard is flecked with grey, so it's more salt and pepper than black. When he lip-syncs to H-Town's part-time lover, he really nails the ad-libs. Both those videos, and a couple of others, have the same caption. For my wife. Love songs so easily fall into the realm of cheesy, singing along to them even more so. But Andre commits. He's feeling feelings. And on TikTok, if nowhere else, you can be earnest. These videos feel like something he hoped his partner would actually see and love. For me, some of the most moving videos from Andre were a couple posted on the day DMX died, in April 2021. In both, he's wearing a maroon terry robe over his t-shirt, with his beard trimmed close. The idea of him posting those to honour the late rapper, a stranger who had moved him with his art, wrecks me. One of the lyrics Andre lip-syncs to is from 1998's Slippin'. If I'm strong enough, I'll live long enough to see my kids doing something more constructive with their time than bids. The one thing that was repeated in news stories about Andre is that he'd gone to Tops that day to do something for his three-year-old son. He was there to pick up a birthday cake. He didn't live long enough. Marawunmi is one of the producers of our show. Catherine Massey, age 72. After the Buffalo shooting, the fact that was repeated about Kat Massey was that she had written a letter to the newspaper calling for gun control about a year before she was murdered. When we started putting together today's program, uh, talking to people who knew Kat Massey and reading some of the many, many letters to the editor that she wrote and all the different things that she cared about, we immediately thought of the writer Eve Ewing. Here she is. Probably like a lot of people, and maybe in particular like a lot of black people, I've been turning away from the news from Buffalo 
It felt too hurtful to sit with. But then, when the show reached out and told me about Kat, things changed. I never met Catherine, Kat, Massey. But when I read about her life, I felt a kinship with her. Because, by all accounts, Kat was a certified member of a group to which I also proudly belong. The Busy Body Club. Aunties, literal or figurative, doers of the most, that one person you know that's all up on everything. Not for the sake of being nosy or in people's business, but someone who, when they see something that could be safer, smarter, better, more accessible, cleaner, more equitable, does something about it. I'm going to give you an example. Here's a story people love to tell about Kat. Maybe because it's a story she loved to tell about herself. But I got to hear it from her friend and frequent co-conspirator, Miss Betty Jean Grant. Kat was trying to get something done, some improvements on her street and she wrote a letter to the governor. He was unmoved. He hit her back and was like, isn't that something a block club would normally handle? But he said, if you get your block club to write a letter, then we'll consider that letter. He assumed she had a block club, but she did not. And so she, uh, <laughs> being a resourceful, resourceful person that she is and was, she um, got some letterhead that she created from the Cherry Street Block Club, and she wrote that request to the governor. On the low, the Cherry Street Block Club was, shall we say, aspirational. It had exactly one member, president, founder, treasurer, secretary, letterhead designer, all rolled into one lady, Catherine Massey. And that turned out to be enough to get the job done. Once it was approved, Catherine, oh my God, you know, I got to form this block club. (laughs) (laughs) I got this done with a block club that doesn't exist, but I got to form a block club. And so she did. That's how the Cherry Street Block Club was born. Now, Busybody 101 is the person who's out in the park picking up trash or making sure kids have something to eat. But the advanced Busybody is the one who knows how to rally the people. They understand how to build a collective vision, and they've got the charisma and persuasive talents to do it. That was Kat, elite-level Busybody. Let me tell you another story, this time from somebody who wasn't Kat's close friend. Uh, well, my name is Michael Christner, uh, actually Mike, um, worked for 25 years at the New York State Department of Transportation. Mike Christner met Kat the way various other political officials slash school principals slash city council people met Kat. Someone came into his office and said, there's a lady downstairs waiting to meet with you. Mike had been assigned to a project near Kat's house. What was the official title of the project? I don't remember what the official title was. Usually our titles are very long and very boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's something like like replacement of the uh, railing on top of the retaining wall along uh, state highway blank, blank, blank. So, it, it, you know, it, it, it would make no sense. And... Uh, she found out, I'm not sure how, but she found out that we had this project. And she came in and uh, uh, sat down and talked to us and actually asked us or told us, what are you going to do for me and for us and for my neighborhood? Cat's house faced the highway. Like, sit on your front porch looking at a highway type face the highway. And she was tired of it. Her neighborhood, like a lot of black neighborhoods in the United States, has an expressway cutting through it. 
the part that ran by Katz House was built out in the 1960s, a period when the federal government was incentivizing highway expansion in a way that often involved bisecting or flat-out bulldozing communities of color. Sometimes incidentally, sometimes on purpose. Between Katz House and all the cars, there was a rusting railing that was falling apart. So, somehow or other, Kat figured out the guy who she could talk to about it. And she used her tried and true method. She showed up in his office. And she brought a friend with her. Remember, collective vision. As Mike recalls it, they sat down, reached into a bag, and pulled out a piece of kente cloth. They put it down in front of him. Now, that must have been surprising. Yes, it was. And what did they say? Kat looked at me, and Kat asked, what are you going to do with this? How can you incorporate this in your project? I mean, I assume that up to that moment, you had no plans to incorporate any type of kente cloth. I've never done anything like that before, but I was elated, actually. And I looked at this as as an opportunity. The fact that Mike saw this moment as an opportunity, that was something Kat brought out in people. Kat's sister Barbara says that one of Kat's many catchphrases was, this is a question, suggestion. I love this phrase. It's brilliant, it's inviting, and it's assertive. It says, I have a vision, but figure it out with me. What Kat couldn't have known before she met Mike was that by recruiting him to be on Team Busybody, she was also helping him see his vision through. Mike, and I mean this in the most flattering way possible, is a transportation nerd. This dude is passionate. A couple of months before this time, I was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and I looked at the railings and the public uh, uh, streets that they have, and I noticed that they had a lot of interesting railing art, art on the railings and art on the walls. Do you often, um, when you travel or, you know, go to different places, do you look at railings a lot? Oh, I, I look at everything. <laughs> Even as a kid, I used to uh, stare out the window as the, uh, driving down the highway. And then she walked in and showed me this kinta cloth. And I, the, you know, one and one equal two. It, was, it seemed like a perfect match. Mike told Kat that the exact kente cloth pattern would be hard to replicate. Too many fine lines to be rendered in concrete. But they brainstormed and came up with something else. Adinkra symbols from Ghana representing different principles and ideas, like a Sankofa bird with the words go back and retrieve. They thought the symbols and words would be cool to look at, but also achieve Kat's goal of inspiring people in the neighborhood to learn a bit about West African heritage and the Black diaspora. They worked together and the plan was approved. Amazing. The end. Psych, this is the government. Of course it took forever. And Kat wasn't going to let up. Getting her plan in place wasn't enough. Well, Kat would would call us occasionally, uh, about every one, uh, every three or six months, ask us to give her an update. How are things going? How are things coming along? Um, when can we expect something? Not quite realizing the process that we go through and how long it takes. Mm-hmm. However, she was still very uh, supportive. I mean, she'd mm-hmm. always walk into the room uh, with a big smile on her face. Mm-hmm. And she was, while she wanted things, she wasn't demanding or pushy. Uh, she had a personality that you really wanted to help. Mm-hmm. You wanted to help her. 
And you said 25 years was your amount of time at the department. Is that correct? 25 That's correct. 20? Yep, 25 years. In in that 25 years, how many times would you say you had a resident, you know, calling frequently to check up on you with the progress of a project? She is the only one. She would always send us a Christmas card. Wow. Every year, even after the project was completed. And she'd address it to me and the A-team. That's what she called us. <laughs> Did anybody else send you Christmas cards to your office? Nobody. Nobody. Wow. Not even the streets and sanitation people? And, <laughs> or are you guys like rivals with them? Uh, well, I wouldn't call it rivals, but uh, we, we, we do a mutual job. In 2012, Kat wrote her own obituary. I'm going to read you some excerpts, a little bit of what she wanted us to know about her. Here it is. Kat did not hesitate from being a committee of one. Once, she picketed her landlord's restaurant for the lack of heat in her apartment. One of her proudest moments in a time when she nearly got cold feet was her appearance as Miss Broccoli. Her invention, that's broccoli with the word cool in it, it's a pun. At a health assembly, at the Dr. Lydia T. Wright School. Her rented broccoli costume was accessorized by sunglasses and leopard gloves. She performed the rap song written by her for the occasion. She often said she was a single parent with 35,000 adopted children attending Buffalo's public schools. Kat was an upbeat people person with a well-used smile. She was not an inside-the-box individual, as her home's unusual decorations such as a knight in armor, demonstrated. And oh yes, she didn't mind expressing her opinion. In newspaper editorials, at school board and community meetings, at Blue Cross Blue Shield where she worked, in the barbershop, at bus stops, in train stations, via online blogs, or wherever. Kat wrote another thing about her own passing a letter to her family encouraging them to prepare for the idea of her being gone. She said, I don't know why Patty had to leave first, but my prayer is for me to be the next to go. I'm overdue. I told Patty, don't let me be a wimp when it's my time. And don't none of you be wimps either. That last part is underlined. I told you earlier that when I saw news about Buffalo, I would look away. Looking away can be a thing you have to do sometimes to protect yourself. But looking away forever also makes it impossible to really grieve. Grief requires you to hold on to something, to sit with it, to look at it, consider it, cry, be mad. And I get the sense that Kat would have really, really wanted us to do all those things because she didn't look away. Cat showed up. We need people like Cat. The people who aren't paid to care, who aren't experts, who know everything. They're just the folks who are willing to make the sign, meet the principal, call the governor, put on the wrapping broccoli costume. The few, the proud, the busybodies. E-viewing in Chicago. Her website is eveewing.com.
Coming up, a man and a deacon get into a car. Money's exchanged. The man is confused. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Ira Glass. Our program today is about the 10 people killed at Topps Grocery in Buffalo this May. I think the world moved on from that event a little too quickly. And today we're talking about things about them that get left out when we speed past these moments of mass violence. Small things, like Marcus Morrison, 52, a school bus aide, father of six. Several people remember him as bubbly, funny. Though his cousin and his brother Frederick said, okay, sometimes he really wasn't as funny as he thought. Well, you know how you tell a joke, but it's only humor to you, but just to make you feel good, we'll laugh with you anyway. Totally. <laughs> Do you remember any of his jokes? I don't. It was corny, but just laugh with him anyway. <laughs> Frederick did remember some of his brother's dirty jokes, but didn't want to share those on the radio. The brothers, they were two years apart, they saw each other all the time. Every day. For real, every day. Every day, every chance we get. You see him, you see me. That's why people used to think we were twins because we always together. Yeah. And we look alike, and we look alike. Marcus would text him or call him, saying, open the back door. And they'd sit and chat in Frederick's living room. Marcus on the brown recliner, Frederick on the couch. They'd watch TV, they'd stand up, they'd listen to music together. That's what Frederick says he misses the most. Something that doesn't have a particular name, not a dramatic memory with his brother, just hanging out, the dailiness of it. Next up, Geraldine Chapman Talley, age 62. People in Buffalo told us that pretty much everybody who's there who's black knows somebody who died May 14th. And the effects of violence like this, a gunman showing up to specifically kill black people, for black from the families involved, to those like that who knew them, to people all over the country, especially black people who are thinking it through. For his story, Cassie Lehman wanted to talk through one fact in particular about Geraldine Chapman Talley's life with someone he knows. Geraldine Chapman Talley. Jerry by her friends and family. She was the seventh of nine children and graduated from East High School in 1977. She was an excellent cook and baker. She had a daughter, a son, and a stepdaughter. Not long after learning she was about to become a grandmother for the first time, Chapman Talley was murdered in a top supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Here's the part that felt most familiar and ultimately most terrifying about this American story. Jerry Chapman Talley was born in Grove Hill, Alabama, and moved to Buffalo when she was 11. That move, Grove Hill, Alabama, to Buffalo, New York. I heard that, and I had the same reaction as my friend, Zandria Robinson, who, like me, left the Deep South for the North. Zandria was raised right up the road, 
I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and she's from Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, my immediate thought was just, we went all the way up there just to die the same way that we were trying not to die. Wow. I wanted to talk to Zandria because she wrote the book Chocolate Cities with Dr. Marcus Hunter. They drew the map on black migratory paths in America. Zandria is a professor of African-American studies at Georgetown, so that's Dr. Robinson to y'all. On the black map they drew, Buffalo isn't the north or even the northeast. It's part of something called the Up South. And Alabama, like Mississippi, like Memphis, is a part of something called the Deep South. Zandria told me Ms. Chapman Talley's people made the move later than most in 1971. So, Buffalo, there was a bunch of black people there already. Yeah. They had cultivated a black side of town. Right. They found up there a, definitely an up south or definitely a north that <laughs> was the south. <laughs> definitely a up south. But it was still something different. I told Zandria that when I talked to Chapman Talley's family, I heard the story of how the Chapmans arrived in Buffalo a few different ways. Chapman Talley's niece, Tamika Harper, says the family was coming up to Niagara Falls from Alabama for family vacation. Something happened to the car, she says. Chapman Talley's father found a job paying better than Alabama and ended up staying. Hattie Chapman Steele, Chapman Talley's older sister by six years, recalls a slightly different story. She says that the family moved to Buffalo because their mother found out she had a sister in Buffalo. Zandria said it's hard to really grasp the enormity or the psychic toll of these migrations, whether one was moving up and over a few counties or all the way across the country. Um, you know, in my father's case, I'm leaving Glendora, Mississippi, yeah. and I'm going to Memphis. Yes. That is for somebody who lived the county, two counties over from where Emmett Till was murdered, that's a big move. It's huge. It's a huge move. So to imagine the Chapmans saying, all right, we're going from the bottom to the top. That's symbolic. It's geographical. It's cognitive. And it meant that Miss Jerry ended up with a different kind of life than she would have had in Alabama. Jerry's older sister, Hattie, said that for her, the move to Buffalo was difficult. Hattie was 18 years old, and though she was eager to see what Buffalo had to offer, she was still deeply connected to Alabama. But Jerry was much younger, and she took to Buffalo quickly. Zandria and I talked a while about what young Jerry's life might have been like in Buffalo. In our deep south, it was ritual to sit on a porch cradled by humidity or in an idling impala considering the journey of Black folk who left home and never made it back. And, like, this is the thing I love about talking to you because there's something either deeply Black American, deeply Southern Black American about what we're doing now, which is a kind of attempt at eulogy, elegy, really loving someone that we did not particularly individually know-know, but we felt like we might have known part of their journey. You know, we we say these things, we know these people, and I'm just hurt yeah. a lot that we don't get to know more about her from her. You write a lot about what we are owed in life as folks from black folks from the deep south, and what kinds of 
I'm interested in you can talk to me about what kinds of death are we owed when we leave home or are carried from home for a different kind of freedom. People are always going to talk about this repair and reparation and whatnot. What kind of deaths are we owed, whether we stay home in the Deep South, and particularly in this situation, whether we go to these corners of the nation that might be a little bit different or a lot different from our Southern homes? I think we're owed the deaths of our choosing. Yes. And that might seem hyperbolic because, of course, God and all of that. (laughs) But I would say that of all the things, I would hope that people would be able to be peaceful, quiet, surrounded by music, love, and family chosen and otherwise, and whoever else they wanted to be there. Yes. Being able to move into the light in ways of their own choosing. That's what this country owes to all black people as reparations. To be able to choose, but... This manner, yes, to be lynched. That's all the way up in the corner next to Canada. Yeah. And I know what America is. Right. I wasn't like, oh, my God, this happened up north. (laughs) Obviously. I know what America is. Yes. I've always known this. Yet, to go so far. And then to not have a choice, to have that choice made for you in that way, that's not acceptable to take people like this. And I think that being able to choose our exits, choose which way we're going to go off the stage is so essential. Geraldine Chapman Talley did not get to choose how she left Buffalo. Tamika shared some of the regular texts she'd exchanged with her aunt, and two in particular got to me. In one of Chapman Talley's messages to her niece, she rejoices at her recent negative COVID tests and thanks her niece for all the care and concern as she battles a prolonged back problem. Happy to say I'm negative for COVID, Chapman Talley texted Harper. Just to hear a concerned family member voice can feel they are for real means the world to me. You have always checked on me throughout my years of illness. There will always be a place in my heart emoji for you. Oh, Harper responded to the text from her aunt. No thanks needed, my auntie slash mommy. I love you. Blowing kisses emoji. My auntie slash mommy. A few weeks after 10 black people are murdered in a grocery store in western New York for being black people in a grocery store in western New York, nothing feels more deeply Southern than the my preceding auntie slash mommy. That my desperately wants Geraldine Chapman Talley, a black woman born in Grove Hill, Alabama, whose heart meat seems as uniquely shaped as her migration journey to Buffalo, to know she is cherished, 
connected, and most horrifying of all, safe. Cassie Lehman. He's the author of the memoir Heavy and other books. Ruth Whitfield, 86 years old. There's this line uh, used over and over about the oldest victim, Ruth Whitfield, that she'd gone to Tops after visiting her husband that morning in a nursing home. B.A. Parker wanted to talk to her son, Garnell Jr., about what seemed to be a very long love story. I sat down at Garnell Jr.'s dining room table, hoping to hear stories about Ruth Whitfield and her husband Garnell Sr., how they met and who they were before having four children and before the nursing home visits. But instead, I learned about how she loved secondhand shopping and singing the hymn Peace Be Still, how she got her GED late in life and was adamant that no one call her Ruth, always Mrs. Whitfield, or how she once desperately rushed onto a football field when a teenage Garnell Jr. got injured during a game. And I opened my eyes and I look up at my mom standing over me <laughs> in the middle of the field and all of these people. My mom had run out on the field. <laughs> and I said, Mom, what are you doing out here? <laughs> but uh, Garnell Jr. is the second uh, oldest and a retired cool. fire commissioner you know, for the city of Buffalo. Like that, and he sat with me in his flip-flops yeah. while his tiny dog rested at his feet. And instead of a love story about his parents, he told me a story about a car. When Garnell Jr.'s dad first moved into the nursing home, Mrs. Whitfield wanted a car. Whatever she got her first car in her name. Wait, were you at the dealership with her? Oh, yeah, we were there. We were there. Oh, yeah. Because I think the first time, because she had never done this before. And, I didn't, and she never had credit. She never had credit. It was my dad's credit. She never worked. She never had credit. No. So, yeah, I was there. So Mrs. Whitfield was in her early 80s in a car dealership with three of her adult children going back and forth about what car to get. She wanted something with a little flair, but her kids were pleading with her to be sensible. And so she ended up getting a Buick, which was fine. Well, she bought bought the SUV because she thought she would be it would be easier to get my father mm-hmm. and take him, you know, on visits to the you know, home or whatever from the nursing home. Um, but as it turns out, she wasn't able to do that with him. At her age, it wasn't physically feasible for Mrs. Whitfield to help him into the car. And uh, so, so she regretted getting the SUV. She, hated, she ended up hating it. Mm-hmm. She hated it because that's not really what she wanted. But that was kind of what Mrs. Whitfield always did. Take care of others. Get the car she didn't really want because it could possibly help someone else. See, Mrs. Whitfield grew up on Grand Island, the small island right between Buffalo and Niagara Falls. And even as a kid, she was caring for siblings and cousins. And when she got married at 19, same thing. She was taking care of her husband and kids. Her house was the one that everyone in the neighborhood would come to. So to Garnell Jr., hearing his mom described as a doting wife, sure, but it doesn't quite feel like enough. But they stayed together. You know, they stayed together. They loved each other. And um, 
everything was not hunky-dory. Everything was not, um, you know, between them. They had problems over the years, you know, and it cost them. It cost her, you know, it cost her. Um, she, uh, she sacrificed uh, a lot of her dreams, you know. She sacrificed them to stay together and to stay with us. When my father became debilitated, it's the first time in my mom's life that she was independent, had a certain, had that kind of independent where she had to pay bills. She became the head of the household. And as difficult as it might have been, it was something that she relished, I think, you know? She got to be her own person and be in charge. Garnell Jr. watched as his mom asserted herself and figured out what she wanted. When the staff at the nursing home would talk to Garnell Jr., his mom would get annoyed and say, you're talking to the wrong person, talk to me. And she drove herself everywhere. Granted, she had three accidents this year, but Garnell insists that at least one of them wasn't her fault. She started doing things she'd never done before, like taking herself on a vacation, solo, to Florida. A first. And it was around this time that the new, independent Mrs. Ruth Whitfield, now 83, finally went shopping for the car that she actually wanted. A 2020 Hyundai Elantra. And there was no fighting her on this one. When we went to get the car, um, uh, the guy had a... He had a 2019, brand new, no miles on it, hadn't sold it. Great deal, great deal. She refused to take it. Because it wasn't new. <laughs> it wasn't, it had to be in the current year <laughs> that we were there. <laughs> oh, we went around and around. I said, Mom, are you kidding me? This is a great deal, Mom. They, they're giving you this car, it's a great deal, Mom. No, she would have not. She got mad. She, oh, it, it got to be a real thing between us. I said, Ma, it doesn't matter. No, I want it new. It's got to be. It's got to be in the current year. I don't care if nobody ever drove it before. It's got to be in this. Year. That's how she was. So she got her. She got her brand new car. Yeah. Again, this is a brand new car, and she is eighty-three years old. Oh, she loved it. She got what she wanted. She had the sunroof, the heated seats. You know, she she, she had, it had to be. She wanted black. She got black. She wanted black or something. I want black. So she got her a black Hyundai Elantra, and uh, you had to know my mom. Um, see, her car would be full of stuff all the time. She was a thrift. She go to thrift stores, and she would just buy stuff. You know, she would just buy stuff. Some of it's very nice stuff, you know, but she would have stuff in the car that's been sitting in there for, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, they, uh, at, uh, at tops. Um, when I saw a car, similar to hers, that looked like hers, might be hers, in the parking lot. And I, <clears throat> I told the uh, the detectives and the police, and, you know, that were there coordinating off the area. And said, like, I see a, I see the roof of a black car sitting in that parking lot. I need you to go and look at that car and see if it's my mother's car. 
As a former fire commissioner, he knew the police, and he ran down to Tops when he heard about the shooting to see if he could help. The car caught him by surprise. He said, well, how would you know? What's the place? I said, I don't know. He said, look in the car. It's going to be some kind of hat in the back window. It's going to probably be handwritten signs in the windows of that car. You know, it would be something, something about God, something about the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> she, she was a note writer. Um, mirrors in the house, doorways in the house, they would have notes. So I knew that, you know, if they saw these things in the car, that would identify the car. And that's basically what happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. After Mrs. Whitfield died, Garnell Jr. kept some of the notes that his mother wrote, some that were in the car and more directly the ones she kept in her husband's room at the nursing home. One that stuck out read, God's got my back. She kept it in her husband's room to let everyone know not to be worried. Once again, taking care of everyone. B.A. Parker is one of the hosts of Code Switch on NPR. Roberta Drury, 32 years old. She was the first person killed and the youngest person killed. Roberta moved to Buffalo from outside Syracuse to care for her brother, who was ill. She described in a lot of stories as vibrant, funny, joyful. When we reached out to Damon Young to write about somebody for today's show, he asked specifically for Roberta. If Roberta Drury and I happen to be acquaintances, if we were co-workers, if she were a neighbor, or if I were a new boyfriend of a cousin, the ask would have been subtle. If we happen to be close friends, though, I would have just came out with it. Roberta, your name. What's the story there? It was the second thing that struck me when first reading news stories about her. The first was her face, because she reminded me so much of a close friend of mine. The smile, especially. It's eerie how a stranger can feel so familiar, so tactile, from just a picture. How you can see and hear so much from a face, and how a face can sit inside of you and just stay there. But then there was her name. It's funny sometimes how names work. Names like Tiffany and Amber, for instance, feel like the 80s and the 90s, like Pringles chips, cross-colored jeans, and Nintendos. Names like Akil and Rahim feel East Coast, but not Atlanta, Miami, or Charlotte. More like Philly, Baltimore, Brooklyn, and D.C. Roberta, today, in 2022, feels like a vestige of an earlier era, something almost ancestral. She was adopted at 18 months into a white family. The name came from her birth family, and it reminds me of power and laughter and love, of generous hugs and the baked candy yams you still taste three months after Thanksgiving. And I think it reminds me of those things because of the aunties, church ladies, and grandmothers I've known and known of who were named that. The Roberta in my life is a great aunt. Everyone, 
at least everyone in Newcastle, PA, calls her Birdie. My family also had a Peggy, a Betty, a Ruth, and a Gladys, and still has an Eleanor. And when the Peggy's and Betty's and Gladys's in our families leave us, those names usually leave us too. But Roberta Drury, a 32-year-old in 2022, was here. It's also funny how names can be predictive, which is an academic way of saying prophetic, and my way of saying that maybe Roberta was here because the world needed more Robertas. More love, more vibrancy, more jubilance, more saying I love you, and not just saying it, but leaning out the window and shouting it at your best friend, which is what Roberta's best friend Crystal said she always did. More singing yourself to sleep, which is what Roberta's sister Amanda said she'd always do as a kid. She sings so forcefully, so joyfully, that it would drain her into slumber. Sometimes her singing would be too loud, like when she called her half-sister Nancy at work, and Roberta would belt Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody so loudly that Nancy had to run outside to answer it. But Nancy would always pick up, because, as Roberta would say, Whitney Houston is calling. You don't ignore Whitney. Talking to the people who knew her, I also learned that she didn't love her name. Her family knew her as Robbie. When she got older, she chose to be called Berta. I get it. Roberta is a hard name for a young person to have. The Robertas in my life, I can't even picture them young. What I associate with that name is a product of years, decades of life. I just wish Roberta Drury had that chance too. Damon Young is a contributing opinion writer at The Washington Post. Haywood Patterson. 67 years old. A quick heads up before we start this one. Uh, this story talks a little about the day of the shooting and the violence that day. Hayward Patterson was deacon at State Tabernacle Church of God in Christ. Grew up in Buffalo, loved to sing. Penny Beckham, who worked with Patterson at the church, says he had a beautiful voice. I'm a soldier in the Army of the Lord was a favorite of his. He volunteered regularly at the soup kitchen Penny ran, Miss Penny's play-to-love food ministry. Most volunteers, she said, don't spend a lot of time talking to the people who come in, some of whom are in a pretty bad way. But Deacon Patterson would go in and he would talk to each individual. He wasn't judgmental. He let them know that their present state was not their expected end. And he would tell them about God's love and how God's love transformed him from who he was to who he was that day. Michael Harriet, a writer for The Griot, Met somebody who watched Deacon Patterson a lot. Most of them a distance. Somebody who saw him almost every day, including the day he died. At the center of every black neighborhood is the store. It's not a store, but the store. A nexus that serves as the de facto gathering spot. Tops was the store, and Grady Lewis was the quintessential man in front of the store. Grady's work was what partly kept him around Tops. Almost every day, he pushed a shopping cart for miles, collecting bottles and cans. Then he'd bring them to Tops to collect the recycling return fee. Then he'd just hang. 
for hours. The men in front of the store see everything. Grady knew when security guard Aaron Salter was scheduled to begin his shift. He could tell you when a new employee was hired. Everyone knew Grady. Uh, my mother told me I never met a stranger. Um, so I have no problems with chat with anybody. I can walk up to anybody from anywhere and talk to them. After he dropped his cans, Grady would hang out at the abandoned building across the street from the store. And that's where Grady first noticed the black Ford Fusion that would be in the Tops parking lot every day. He put like a strip, a silver strip, right there by the door. I was always being able to tell his car because of that, that strip it had on there. The car belonged to Haywood Patterson, the deacon. Grady knew Deacon from around East Buffalo, back when Deacon lived on the same block as Grady's uncles, back when everyone used to call Deacon Patterson teeny boy. And he knew Deacon from Tops, where Deacon was a jitney driver, shuttling passengers back and forth to the neighborhood's only grocery store in his unofficial cab. But Grady didn't know no Deacon, until one day, Grady was sitting in his usual spot at the abandoned building across from Tops, and then Deacon called Grady over to the parking lot. He asked if Grady wouldn't mind helping one of his Jitney customers carry her bags. Grady knew Deacon had a bad knee and couldn't climb stairs. I know that he needed my help, so even if I had no money in my pocket and he needed my help, I would, I would help him. Because I remember the first time I did it for him, the woman had steep, like, I don't even know, uh, 30... 40 steps up the back house. And that was a little bit of a lug, uh, carrying those groceries up them steep steps. Grady figured Deacon was making a cool profit as a jitney driver. He knew other jitneys charged as much as $10 to $20 to ride a couple of blocks. But often, Deacon would give the bulk of the money to Grady. Deacon would pay him just for walking a couple of blocks or going up one flight of stairs or for just pointing people in his direction. One time I... I I told somebody, okay, he's here's a jitney over here. He gave me $10. None of it made much sense to Grady. So uh, there's been numerous of times where he gave me $10, where he probably got 15 So <laughs> I, I thought to myself, well, how much money could he be making if he's giving me the majority of it? But Grady never asked. He just quietly did the math in his head because he knew Deacon wasn't rich. Patterson worked part-time at Sneakertown, an athletic shoe store across the street from Tops. Grady thought, Deacon must have seen me pushing that shopping cart for miles. Everyone saw me. I mean, he knew my situation, so uh, he knew I, 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 I collected bottles and cans. So, well, I'm a week-by-week uh, money guy. If a day I don't got no money in my pocket and he not get some money, that's a beautiful thing, especially for doing something I would have did for free anyway. So that's probably why, uh, since I, I think he knew I needed money, um, that's what he did. He gave me money. That's when Grady realized he wasn't helping Deacon. Deacon was helping him. Deacon wasn't even running a profit-making venture. He was providing a resource for people who needed help. When Grady would ride with Deacon, they'd get to the end of the ride, and the customers would say, how much do I owe you? And Deacon would tell his riders to give whatever your heart desires. I, I heard, nice to hear him say it. I'd be like, whatever they want, whatever their heart desires, shoot, it may be $2 they, their heart may desire. But he would take it. And if you're wondering who does that, Grady wondered the same thing. This older lady, he took her one, two, three blocks up. 
And she kept asking, you know, how much, and he kept telling her how much you can afford. Um, she ended up giving him $10. He gave me $8. The one thing that Deacon Patterson and Grady had in common is that they were black men in Buffalo, which also meant that they were subject to the systemic failures of their city. In Buffalo, the black unemployment rate is nearly twice the white unemployment rate. In Buffalo, more than a third of the black population lives in poverty. In Buffalo, black residents are six times more likely to live in an area without a grocery store. Deacon Patterson was just one of the members of this community who took it upon themselves to patch the shoddy social safety net that's supposed to address these problems, problems that should be considered public concerns and solved with public resources. Deacon Patterson helped people because he could see that people needed help. On Friday, May 13th, Deacon didn't have any work for Grady, so Grady hung around in front of the store. He chatted up the security guard who works the shift before Aaron Salter. He ran into his mother shopping at Tops, and he noticed a new guy leaving the store. Grady says he approached him, and when the stranger said he was from out of town, that he stopped by the store on his way to a camping trip, Grady says he told him that he has to go see Niagara Falls. The next day, Saturday morning, Grady went to Miss Penny's plate of love as usual. And I woke up late, so I always would take out the garbage for her because she does a lot in the community. So I went up there um, late, and I got there about 12 or something like that. Um, she finished cleaning up about 2. She had um, two breakfasts still, and I was like, well, I can find somebody to, um, to give it to because I was going to Tops anyway because I know it's a lot of people there, and they will want the breakfast. Miss Penny told Grady, oh, I have something to get at the store. I'll give you a ride. I dropped him off up on Jefferson, dropped Grady off, and I went to take care of something that I had to. And then... She dropped me off at the store. It was less than an um, I walked across the street because there was nobody there. And, then, and I seen an old guy out there, and then I gave him a breakfast, and I walked um, right next door to Top's. And um, I gave one of the breakfasts to the guys that were sitting over there. And I noticed the um, police guard Aaron Salter's car. He had an old fancy Cadillac. Grady saw Roberta Drury, noticed she had a nice dress on and a lot more groceries than normal. He saw Pearl Young, who had just attended a prayer breakfast. And he saw the deacon, who had just come from Mr. Love's barbershop, standing outside the store as usual. I talked to the old man for a quick second about my drink, walked out, and I thought to myself, you know, I should sit here for a second because I see there's a lot of people out here. Maybe he's having a good day today and don't really mind too much. And it was a beautiful day out, so I walked across the street at the bus stop, and then I opened my drink, and I took a sip out of it, and I heard a big boom. And then I looked up where I was sitting at, right across and I saw this white smoke. And I, th um, I think I seen her fall. The first victim, Roberta. Then I seen a, a guy in camouflage shoot 
a lady by the door. Then I seen him shoot. I didn't know at the time, but um, Deacon. Then I seen him shoot through the window. Then I seen people running. And then I'm just seeing more smoke. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe the Russians attacked us and I didn't hear about it on the news. And I'm like, okay, this is crazy. Um, then I seen Aaron Salters run back into the building. And I seen the guy go in with his gun, um, rifle, and he's just shooting. And as soon as he went in, I started yelling and screaming for people because I don't have a cell phone. I started yelling and screaming for people to um, call the police. The police, somebody please call the police. And I'm just hearing the the ringing from the from the from the um, the gunshots, and and it was rapid. It was loud. It was boom, 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 boom. I think actually at that point that my feelings kind of left my body because it, it was the most incredible thing I ever experienced in my life that people you know, people you don't know, somebody in there shooting random people with this loud big gun with white smoke. You know, Grady was calling me, telling me that they shot Deacon, but I didn't want to accept that, so I asked him, Deacon who? And he said, I said, was it Deacon from my church? And he said, yes. And at that particular time, he talked, he said, wait. And then he said, they just covered him up. So I knew then Deacon was gone. It's been three months since the shooting. Tops has reopened, and the men are back in front of the store, across from the memorial to the 10 lives that were stolen from this community. The car with the silver stripe isn't waiting at Tops or at the plate of love on Saturday mornings. When I pull into the parking lot, the vehicle, that first vehicle I would see in the parking lot would be Deacon Patterson's vehicle, and I would always park next to him. And to pull up in the parking lot and his car not be there, that was strange. And to go in to enter the church through the side door of the parking lot. And when I would go into the church, I would see Deacon Patterson. So to go into the services and not see him, to come to the plate of love and not see him, you know, is a great loss. A great loss. That loss is being felt in different places by different people across Buffalo's east side. Pamela Pritchett no longer sees her mom, Pearl Young, pop up on Facebook asking, why wasn't I invited? At Gardnell Whitfield Sr.'s nursing home, everyone notices that Mrs. Ruth Whitfield no longer comes every day, bringing gifts for the staff that she picked up thrifting. When Kayla Jones turned 25 last week, she cried. Normally, her grandmother would be the first person to call her on her birthday. When someone is missing from your daily life because of a racist act of terror, it changes you. It's changed Grady, Grady, who used to talk to everyone, who had approached a stranger outside Tops the day before the shooting. 
Grady learned that that person was, of course, the same person who came back the next day and allegedly shot and killed 10 people in front of him. A young white man who traveled to one of the most segregated cities in America, determined to kill black people. And Grady, the man in front of the store, is still watching. But he sees things different now. Um, I um, was at the memorial, and a lady and her husband and her young son, 18, 19, 20. Um, I'm talking to them, no problem. I looked at him, and I was scared of him. And I seen another young white kid, boy. I was scared of him. Um, so I have this thing now to where I'm kind of scared of young white boys now. Um, probably, well, probably, definitely from this the shooting, from me talking to this kid and him being seeming to be like a regular guy. And I don't, I don't even think I, I went to, um, the tops on M wood is all white tops. And, and then this, and then it's just, it's me. I felt like every white person was looking at me. Before the shooting, Grady's can collecting trek took him to neighborhoods all over Buffalo. Even when, before this, I would always would be cautious. But I kind of had a, a break because I was a old black guy pushing a shopping cart. Maybe nobody bothered him. Now, I mean, they're shooting old people in supermarkets. So, yeah, so I don't feel safe in going to neighborhoods anymore. So um, I haven't been able to collect my bottles and cans anymore um, because, like I said, I would go on the west side in North Buffalo, and those are predominantly white neighborhoods, and I would do it at 12 o'clock at night, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I, I, I can't take no chance and, um, and do that at all, and it's kind of a shame because um, – but it ain't kind of a shame. It is a shame because I actually I love collecting bottles and cans. Um, it made me feel like I had a purpose. Uh, doing something good for the environment and also making money and getting exercise in. I walked 23 miles, made my own time. You know, if I want to work, I can work. If I want to work later, I can work later. If I want to go to work earlier. So I felt free in that sense. If the world made sense, Grady would still feel free. If the world made sense, Deacon Patterson's life could serve as a parable about love, charity, or the redemptive quality of grace. But there is a danger in manufacturing meaning out of something so meaningless. There is no way to rationalize the hate that left a huge gaping hole in an entire community. Then again, if any of this made sense, there'd be no such thing as black neighborhoods, or poverty, or food deserts, or racial disparities, or senseless violence. If the world made sense, Deacon Haywood Patterson would still be a man in front of a store. Michael Harriet writes for The Griot, and he's the host of The Griot Daily Podcast. Coming for to carry me home Tell all my friends
hands I'm coming to, coming for to carry me home. Swing low. Our program is produced today by Hannah Jaffe Walt and our executive editor Emmanuel Berry. The people who put together today's show include Elna Baker, Chris Benderev, Sean Cole, Michael Comite, Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Cassie Halley, Valerie Kipnis, Seth Lynn, Tobin Lowe, Miki Meek, Michelle Navarro, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor, Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior editors, David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Madison Carter, Sherry Sherrill of Covington Associates Consulting, and We Are Women Warriors. Barbara Massey-Matt, Peter Kramer, Sean Glitzter, James Pennington, Valerie Wilcox, Alvina Alston, Jay Ray, and Jerry Urban, and WBFO News. Thanks again to Curtis Lovell, the Buffalo musician you're hearing right now and throughout our show. You can find her on Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your music. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 750 episodes for absolutely free. Also, there's videos, there's lists of favorite shows, there's tons of other stuff there. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. I'm Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Sweet Jerry Hart, coming for to carry me home.